Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney. And this week I have a guest who is someone who comes all the way from the home of Harajuku Girls. That's right, her name's Bree Schmidt. And she is a fellow podcaster based in Tokyo, Japan. Brie hosts Bad Girlfriend Radio and is also a feminist relationship coach. Brie is dedicated to helping people navigate love and to crushing the pressure to be a perfect woman or the dream girlfriend. Speaking of perfect... Let's sashay into this week's segment with a song by the infamous Princess Superstar. It's, of course, her hit, Perfect. And this is the 2018 Michi Lang Sidekick Remix. So, one, two, three, four. Let me hear you scream if you want some more feminism.
Hey Brie, hello Brie and welcome to Feminist Fridays. Hey, thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm great. It's Friday. Friday is always good. <laughs> Friday's good. So thanks so much for joining us. Um, I thought I'd ask uh, firstly a little bit about your background and how and where you grew up. It sounds like it might have been in the United States um, and maybe you could tell us some of your early influences and when did you move to Japan and how long have you been there? Yeah, so right now I'm in Japan but mm. I'm from the U.S. Mm. and growing up in the U.S. I lived in Ohio and Texas. Oh. I moved around a lot which I think actually was kind of a huge influence on me now because growing up in all these different areas w within the U.S., um, 
and different kinds of communities, I actually got to know a lot of different perspectives. There was a lot of diversity in some of those communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Where in Texas are you? Where are you from? So I lived in like around Dallas and then around Houston. Oh, okay. I've been to both. Oh, okay. Did you like it? Um, I was doing a road trip, so I didn't stay long, but I did go to the grassy knoll in Dallas and Houston I flew into. Oh, okay. So, yeah, and Houston and, in particular is actually like a really big city. Mm. And maybe if you're not from the U.S., you might not think of it. You might think of, you know, like L.A. or New York, but Houston is actually huge. And even just in Houston, there's so many different kinds of people from different backgrounds. Mm. So... Yeah, I really appreciate having um, that experience to meet so many different kinds of people. And then within my household, it was like mostly a female dominated household. I didn't have any brothers growing up, only sisters. Mm -hmm. And I think that has even influenced me and who I am now, because it always kind of came naturally to me to, um, you know, want to support women and kind of work together as women. Um, and I grew up also loving the Spice Girls, which we might talk about a little bit later. We will. But, <laughs> but I, loved, I loved the Spice Girls. And I think just having examples like that of kind of like strong women, even that as well has influenced me a lot. I feel like that's even like a whole other part of my background that we can get into later. Yes, we will get into that. Um, and when did you move to Japan and what brought you there? Yeah, so then for Japan, so I've been here for about four and a half years. And, you know, what I do now, I'm a relationship coach and educator. And so it's kind of a funny story. What brought me here back when I was still in university and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after I graduated, I had a really committed relationship, you know, very serious uh, romantic relationship and, and boyfriend at the time. And he wanted to move to Japan. And so that kind of influenced me. Um, Even that, I think, is kind of part of my background in how I became a a relationship coach and educator because, um, and this is something too we can get into later, but uh, that relationship wasn't actually the healthiest. So thankfully, uh, I I wanted to follow him to, to Japan, but by the time I got here, actually, we went ahead and broke up. And that was such a crucial moment in my own history and my own kind of personal story, because it actually allowed me more of an opportunity to grow and to kind of get on this path that I'm on now. So I understand that, yes, you mentioned you've got a unique background combining an education in sexuality studies and sociology, and then you trained in CBT therapy and life coaching. So what was it that led you to pursue your current career as a relationship educator and coach? Was this something that you'd always thought about or was there a particular experience or something that you witnessed that made you realize that this was a much needed gap that needed filling in your field? Yeah, well, so this kind of ties into um, that kind of like bad relationship that I had. Mm. Um, Growing up, actually, I didn't have many examples of healthy relationships. In fact, I had examples of pretty toxic abusive, traumatic relationships. Mm. And when I got a little bit older and I was at the age of starting to date um, or having that really committed uh, kind of enmeshed relationship when I was in university, 
I knew I didn't want that kind of toxic relationship that I grew up watching, but I didn't know what to put in its place. So right. I knew what I didn't want, but I, I didn't know how to become, uh, you know, kind of the, the kind of person that I wanted to be. I didn't know how to have the kind of relationship I wanted to have. And actually, I didn't even really know what that was, like what kind of relationship is actually healthy? What does that actually look like? Um, so I started to realize when I was kind of in my early 20s around that time that I was in a relationship that I really cared about, but I felt like it was really unhealthy. There was a lot of conflict and I realized I was having a lot of anxiety coming up and just a lot of issues that I think were probably really deeply rooted in my childhood. And so it was at that time that I decided to actually look into what my university offered and they offered a major in sexuality studies, which was definitely about sexuality and gender issues, but also just as much about relationships too. Mm. Um, and I actually double majored in sexuality studies and sociology. So it kind of gave me an opportunity to get to know myself and my own personal experiences and what I was dealing with, but also kind of the like greater uh, kind of social issues in society and kind of connecting the two. After that, when I got a little bit older, then I realized that I had not only in university, but after that too, through reading a bunch of different, uh, you know, relationship books and, you know, going to therapy and studying life coaching and cognitive behavioral therapy, I realized that I had gone to a point where I was able to kind of coach myself through some of these personal issues and also relationship issues. And, you know, now I'm in a really uh, healthy relationship and I'm married here in Japan. And I realized I kind of got to this point where I was able to coach myself. So maybe I could coach other women as well. That's really great. And I think so many people could identify with navigating those similar issues as they're growing up. Sometimes, often people might get into relationships and realize that they're not quite right or they might be toxic or they're in it for the wrong reason. Um, and it's really awesome that you were able to use that to inspire your career path. Yeah. And I, and I love being able to talk to other women too, and kind of get to know their issues and kind of where they're at in their perspective and being able to use my own experience and help someone else is so rewarding for me. Yeah, for sure. So I also understand that you focus on helping people to navigate love and crushing the pressure to be a perfect woman or the dream girlfriend. And I totally empathise with that pressure. It's something that I see permeating our society all of the time. But I'd love to hear your take on this. Why do you think women in particular do feel the need to be perfect or a dream girlfriend? And just so you're aware, I'm someone who's quite happily single because I've personally gone through times when I felt the pressure to be in a relationship, but have chosen people for the wrong reasons because of that pressure. And these days I would much rather be happily single or would date on my own terms than be in a relationship just because society expects me to. Yeah, yeah. And I think having that self-awareness of what you want and that you'd prefer to be single rather than have a relationship that just doesn't really fit you and what you want in your lifestyle, I think that that is a great decision. Hmm. Um, I think for women in particular, well, I mean, 
historically, like women have been kind of defined in a lot of different cultures by essentially what they can give to other people or their relationships to other people. Mm. So even now today, not only historically, but even now, a lot of women feel pressures to be, you know, this certain kind of wife or to have children and to be a good mother. And um, so I think that when it comes to the pressure to be like the perfect woman or the dream girlfriend, I think it's that same kind of historical pressure that, you know, women are defined by their relationships Mm. or women are defined by their family or, uh, you know, how much they can give to other people. And, but I think today though, what I see a lot nowadays is that there's a pressure to be the dream girlfriend, which is really this like cool girl or like the chill girl, like the chill girlfriend who just kind of goes with the flow and she's really laid back. She doesn't really cause any problems. She doesn't really ask for anything. (laughs) She's just kind of like always agreeable. See, I'm I'm laughing because I'm so not that. (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah. It's not that I don't agree with people, but I'm not, you know, I'm not just going to go with someone else's flow, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And I have talked to a lot of women who have told me basically, if I can't be that kind of woman, if I can't be, you know, just like laid back all the time and, you know, relaxed, then I don't want a relationship. And I think that they're kind of missing this gray area where like, you don't have to give up having needs or asking for things or having emotions. But I think that there's some kind of shame that comes up sometimes for women where they they get into a relationship and it might actually be a healthy relationship, but they just start to feel vulnerable. Mm. And then now they can't fit that image of like the, the cool girl or like the chill girl. They can't be that because really that that woman doesn't really exist. I mean, we're all human. We have different emotions. You know, we're, we're all pretty complex. So I think that this expectation to be like the dream girlfriend, quite frankly, I think it's when it comes to heterosexual relationships, I think it's convenient for men to have like the chill girlfriend, but I think it's actually pretty unrealistic. Absolutely. I'm 100% with you. Another, another one that I, I hear or I, it bugs me, I suppose, is that the clock's ticking kind of pressure, you know, when women reach a certain age and they think, oh my goodness, I should be in a long-term relationship. I should be planning my wedding or to get pregnant or, you know, various different things that they think they have to achieve in their life rather than actually thinking about, well, what is it that I actually need for myself and learning how to ask for what they want. And I think when you talk about that vulnerability that women experience in relationships, I've, you know, I've personally felt it when I've questioned myself and gone, do I feel afraid to ask a certain person for what I need or what works for me in a relationship? And if that question or that doubt is lingering in my mind, then I think, no. I'm entitled to talk about what I feel that I need. And if our paths don't quite align in that way, then that's fine. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person or that other person's bad. It just means that we have, we're on different paths in life. Yeah, absolutely. And there's 
a lot of women who it, it takes them a while to get to that point of understanding that even myself included too, like that was something I struggled with before as well. Mm. Um, and this is something that I, I coach a lot of women on because, you know, it doesn't have to be this like black or white thing, like either I'm in a relationship and I'm losing myself and I'm, you know, sacrificing who I want to be. And I'm just this emotional mess and I don't like it. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be either that or you're just perfectly independent, like not emotional at all, just like the cool, chill girl. Like there is there is some gray area. Like you can mm. be who want to be authentically in a relationship. And if it just doesn't work with the people who you're meeting, then maybe those aren't the right people for you. Let's talk about feminism in Japan. I know that you're a feminist and from the little that I know about Japan, from what I've seen, there are indeed a lot of expectations placed on women. Um, are there many women in Japan who identify as feminists? And just to be clear, I'm an intersectional feminist. So I believe feminism is about equality and human rights for all. It's not just about women's rights. So how do you see feminism being played out or embraced in Japan? And when did you first identify as a feminist? Yeah, well, so I can't remember when I first identified as a feminist, but mm. growing up, I think I was always aware of feminism or, you know, that maybe like back in the in the 1970s, like women had marched for their rights or something, you know, I think I learned things in like history class, but maybe I didn't know how much it actually would impact my life, maybe until I was like a teenager. Um, but from the time that I learned about it, I, I know I've always kind of embraced a feminist uh, perspective and mindset. Um, and, you know, for me being from the US, speaking on Japan, my my perspective, it might be a little bit different or a little bit biased, mm -hmm. but I do, I do see feminism here. I do see there is a little bit of a movement happening and some growth in that movement, but I think it's mostly with younger women, maybe in their twenties, maybe in their thirties. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've seen, you know, in the news, um, here in Japan, some kind of like high profile kind of cases or, or like news stories coming up about things within, you know, you could say feminism. Um, so for example, within the last, I don't know, maybe year or so, there was one particular female journalist who came forward about being sexually assaulted. Um, and she has received a lot of support, but a little bit of backlash as well. And a little bit of, you know, victim blaming. And more recently, I've heard of something called Kutu here in Japan. So basically, it's kind of like a play on words of Me Too. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's basically about kind of a movement here for working women who are working at companies that are requiring them to wear high heels. And they're saying that, you know, the high heels are hurting my feet. I'm going home, you know, with my, my feet all bloody. Like men don't have to deal with this. Why do I have to deal with this? Um, so there is a little bit of some, you know, some growth happening, but it's not something that is embraced as much as, for example, in the US or in Australia. Mm. And I would say something like the Kutu movement about the shoes, like, 
my my impression of it is that it's a little bit more kind of easy to digest to talk about something like your shoes rather than like sexual assault, for example. Mm. Um, See, that's funny because I'm someone who likes to wear high heels quite often, but if I was told that I had to wear them, then it would be a different story. I would certainly be part of that movement. And I remember when I was growing up and I was first faced with wearing a school uniform, this was at the age of five, I rebelled and refused to wear it. So that that just speaks a little bit to my personality and what I think I would do if I was told I had to wear high heels rather than given the option of, Sarah, you can wear trainers, flat shoes, or the tallest pair of stilettos that you like. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Actually, you mentioned uniforms. That's another thing too. Um, a lot of people might have that kind of image of like the Japanese like schoolgirl uniform, mm-hmm. um, and that's something too that there isn't much flexibility on in a lot of different schools where you know there 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 aren't that many options for the the girls. So they have to wear this certain skirt. They can't even put like tights under it, even in the winter, for example. Um, you know, I think boys and men here too also have certain expectations. So for example, it's expected that men in in their family will go and work and kind of be the breadwinner. Mm. Um, so I think like you were saying, you know, it's when it comes to feminism and intersectional feminism, it's kind of about how it affects everyone in different ways. It's not even only just about women, it's also about men. And so I would definitely say here in Japan, gender roles are very strong still. Mm. One, this this is a segue, but something I saw recently, which I thought was really quite eye-opening, but also heartwarming, was when the Queer Eye series did a whole season in Japan, and they went over and did a bunch of makeovers for a diverse range of people, but some of them... I mean, I cried at the end of most episodes, I will admit, because some of them were were people who were gay, who were feeling that they couldn't tell their family about their their gender or their sexuality or women who felt like after a certain age they just had to give up feeling beautiful. And um, mm. I don't know if you saw that series, but... I did. Yeah, yeah. I watched it. <laughs> what did you think? Yeah, well, I yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I'm with you. Like I was watching it just feeling so much compassion mm. um for the different people that they were working with. I well, so when it comes to for example, someone in Japan who is gay, like what you were saying that you watched on the show that maybe they can't talk to their family about it. I would say like that's what I've heard from living here too. Mm. Um on the other hand, I also get the impression about Japan that they they might not agree with something here, like as a culture or as a society, there might be something that isn't really mm, permissible or I don't know, they, they don't prefer, for example, they don't prefer for people to be gay. But like for me coming from the US, I hear a lot of really horrible stories of, you know, for example, trans people being attacked and killed. Gosh. And that that level of aggression, I would say, isn't as common here in Mm. Japan, but it really comes down to these like microaggressions, which can still definitely impact you in your, you know, day-to-day life that maybe you go to work and you have to pretend to be someone else, or maybe you can't be 
who you want to be and who you feel that you really are with your own family. Mm. Um, and then you were, you were referring to, to a woman who uh, said like, as she got older, she couldn't be beautiful anymore. Right. She couldn't embrace that as much. Yes. Um, and yeah, I think that that, that as well maybe goes back to the gender roles a little bit that, especially for women, as you get older, you're just supposed to kind of be like the mother figure, you know, you're supposed to kind of play a certain role in society. Mm. So there are definitely those kind of limitations. And it comes out, I think, more in microaggressions rather than these really overt, aggressive or violent kind of reactions. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I certainly have heard that the Japanese culture is very polite. And from the Japanese people I've met, that's certainly been my experience as well. Very respectful and courteous. So, but it, it, it is also, it saddens me to hear that there would still be that level of microaggression or people not accepting all that, that level of pressure. But let's now talk about you being a fellow podcast host uh, and your show, Bad Girlfriend Radio. When did you decide to launch your podcast and why? And why the title Bad Girlfriend? Because I'll be honest and say that I think the label bad seems negative. In my mind, I'm not that keen on labels, especially ones that are negative. In my mind, no one is bad unless they've done something horrifically wrong, like violating another person's human rights. Yeah, well, so for the first question, um, so I started it last year, I decided last year that I wanted to kind of get more serious with this uh, idea of, you know, coaching and offering relationship education to women. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I decided to do the podcast to reach more people and more people that maybe don't really know what coaching is, or they don't really want to work with me one on one, or they don't want to pay for it. All of that I understand. So I wanted to make the podcast to reach those kinds of people. And um, as for the word bad, I am totally with you. Um, And this is something that I addressed in the very first episode of Bad Girlfriend Radio, that it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Yes. And it really comes back to what we were talking about before, about being like the ideal girlfriend or like the perfect woman or the perfect partner. Um, There's a lot of things that women might do. sorry. Um, There's a lot of things that women might do that are not embraced in society or they're discouraged from doing that. It's just part of who they authentically are. Nothing really wrong with it, but still they might be told that's wrong or you're not looking the way that a woman should look. You're not acting the way that a woman should look. Um, You know, you're, you're not being girlfriend material if you do this or that. (laughs) And I wanted to kind of offer that and that that title of bad girlfriend radio to kind of like embrace all of those things that people might say are wrong with us and embrace it because from my perspective if you can go into a relationship being authentic being yourself and not really giving into that pressure to be this way or that way you're actually probably more likely to have a healthier relationship and also just a better relationship with yourself as well i I thought it might have been that decision. I thought it might have been the tongue in cheek, more like badass than bad girlfriend, badass girlfriend radio. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to shame women. Like you are a bad girlfriend, so listen to my podcast. Not, not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, how has your podcast helped your personal growth? 
Well, I I can admit that there have definitely been some episodes of the podcast that were completely inspired and motivated by something that I dealt with personally or in my relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, I have an episode, a really popular one actually, about attachment styles. And I I am very honest in that episode that the reason why I got into studying attachment styles is because I have an anxious attachment style. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people might be like, well, you're a relationship coach and educator. Shouldn't you not have any anxiety? You know, um, but actually a lot of what I talk about, I have dealt with at one point or another, and then I kind of coached myself through it. I studied it. I, uh, you know, had to face some of those flaws or those kind of issues I was dealing with in my own life. And then after working through it, then I feel like I'm able to help other women. Mm. Um, so being able to kind of focus on certain topics in the episodes of the podcast, it has actually helped to teach me things that I want to take away and use in my own relationship or my own life as well. Mm. I can really relate to that. It sounds like you're, you, by using your own voice and by doing your podcast, it's helped you to practice acceptance of your own uniqueness. Uh, yeah. And I certainly know from doing this podcast and through the amazing opportunities I've had to interview diverse guests, it's helped me to grow my own voice and to also feel so inspired, honoured and humbled constantly by the people that I'm able to connect with from all over the world like yourself. So it's, you know, having, having a voice and using it to promote something that you feel passionate about that can help change another person's life, I think is, you know, something to certainly applaud. So I applaud you for doing that. Thank you. And yeah, it's also really rewarding for me too, when I have people message me and say, you know, thank you for that episode that really helped me, or I really identified with that. For me, that is, that's like what it's all about. It's so rewarding. 100%. So you've also recently started giving back through your business by donating a portion of coaching payments to Futures Without Violence to Help Survivors of Domestic and Sexual Violence. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Why did you decide to support this cause? And what what kind of impact does this donation and this organisation have? So, well, right now, for me being American especially, there's a lot going on in the U.S. socially and politically, and I feel like this is not the time to just kind of be quiet. Mm. Um, I (laughs) felt like I really wanted to do something. Um, and I wanted to do a little bit of research and find a, an organization that has similar values and kind of aligns with the work that I do with women. And so futures without violence, they help primarily women and children to get out of violent environments. Um, but they also help men as well. For example, men who have used violence or also grew up in maybe a violent environment um, and they're kind of coping by becoming aggressive and violent. Even with men, they'll, they'll work with them to kind of rehabilitate them. Um, they work with domestic violence survivors and uh, they're also really um, active right now in supporting Black Lives Matter and anti-racism. And so I felt like right now was just like the the perfect time if if there ever was one to um you know try to just give back. And I wanted to do this for 
people who maybe had been considering working with me, but they weren't sure yet. So basically, uh, if you sign up for just one session, it's, you know, no strings attached, just one session, that session is half off already. Um, So I wanted to kind of reach more people that maybe usually wouldn't be able to pay for coaching at its full price. Mm. Um, So this is half off. And then half of that goes to futures without violence. So people are able to kind of work on their own growth and their own future, but also helping someone else at the same time. And I'm not officially affiliated or partnered with Futures Without Violence, but I just kind of, in my own time, you know, I did some research and I decided I wanted to give back to them. That's fantastic. And I I will tell you that I'm a survivor of domestic violence and it's a cause that is something that's very important to me. And in Sydney in New South Wales, where I'm from, I've done some pro bono work for women's safety in New South Wales as a way of giving back because they helped me during my experience of domestic violence. So I think, yes, again, I I applaud you and I say thank you for giving back to that cause because um, unfortunately, um, domestic violence is not going away and violence against people in general is not going away. In fact, in Australia, we've seen an alarming rise in domestic violence during COVID. Have you witnessed anything similar in Japan or heard about it happening in other parts of the world? Yeah, well, I've definitely heard about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the women that I work with or the women in my audience, actually, most of them are not in Japan. They're in other countries. So um, I I can't speak on, you know, in anyone that I know personally, but I have heard that it's also something that is growing here as well with the coronavirus, with people staying home. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't know what, I don't know if this makes a difference or not, but one thing that might be a little bit unique about Japan, and I actually don't know kind of how Australia has been lately, but Japan really didn't have like a lockdown. And there were actually a lot of people through this whole pandemic who, um, they kept going to the office, they kept working. And I I mean, I I hate to say it, but maybe that has helped a little bit in preventing some potential cases of domestic violence. But for some couples, again, just kind of from what I've heard or from what I've read, um, some like married couples who aren't used to spending so much time together because of coronavirus, then they're put in the same house and then there's more conflict and then eventually, uh, you know, potentially some domestic violence or some kind of abusive, um, you know, situations could be coming up. Mm. So what I've heard is like for here in Japan, I've heard that organizations that do tend to um, like, I, I don't actually, I can't name any specific ones. Again, just kind of from what I've read casually, um, like organizations that help with domestic violence um, or they help women have received more calls about domestic violence cases in the home, things like that. So um, I know those organizations are there to help, or I've also heard of maybe this could be unique to Japan. I'm not sure, but like lower priced housing for couples who are fighting or where there is violence taking place one partner then can move into the lower price housing just to get away from their partner. Mm. Um, I, so, would, I would love to see our government support an initiative like that. Unfortunately. And, and I, 
Yes. And to be honest, I don't know if the government is at all connected to it. It might just be like a private company right. thing. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I agree. I think that it is a really important issue. And, you know, the government should play a really active role, I think. I mean, unfortunately, in a lot of cases still, including my own, when people who are experiencing domestic violence, which unfortunately the majority of those are women, they're the ones that have to, who, the people who flee the domestic violence relationship end up being homeless or in a refuge for a period of time. And that's what happened to me. And that should not have happened. If It should right. be the person who's perpetrating the violence who has to leave the home. So mm, I really, I think initiatives like that are extremely important. I just wanted to yeah. briefly ask, so what has the experience been like in Japan during COVID? Because I've experienced COVID in both Paris and Sydney. In Paris, we had a three-month lockdown, which was imposed overnight because France was hit drastically by COVID with a very high number of people getting infected and, and dying. Um, and Australia has had a lockdown and that has been lifted, but our government is still, we're not actually allowed to leave the state that we're in um, and we're not allowed to leave the country. And which to me, it just is um, compared to the number of people being infected in France and um, other parts of the world, it's it's just, it seems, it's it's a complex matter, probably not mm. one to go into too far, but it's very interesting to see how different governments have reacted and how, what impact that's had on society. Yeah. Well, here, like I said, we've never really had an official lockdown, but there mm. have been points where staying home was encouraged. And I live in Tokyo, so Tokyo has had um, by far the most cases. Mm. So there have been times where we were encouraged to not go out or, you know, shopping malls and restaurants were closing, mm -hmm. but um, there was never really much official enforcement by the government. It really came down to kind of the individual and the individual company. And so there have been times where you would think that everything would be shut down and yet I could still go outside and go, you know, sit in a restaurant if I wanted to, because that restaurant remained open. Um so I think that they're trying to just kind of practice social distancing here, but mm. not shut things down. Mm. Okay. So yeah. let's talk about you and the Spice Girls, because <laughs> you've mentioned in your bio that you would have loved to be a sixth member of the Spice Girls. And I wanted to ask, why not now? I, I have always been a fan of the Spice Girls. When I was growing up, because I have red hair, I was always Ginger Spice. But I think <laughs> if I could give myself a name now, I would be Intersectional Spice. Um, what would your Spice Girls name be if you could join them? And is singing and performing something that you're also passionate about? Or are you a karaoke tragic like me? Your name is so good. I love that. <laughs> 
I I can't think of a good name. <laughs> and I I don't think I could be a member now for sure. I loved them so much when I was growing up. I, I even went to one of their concerts. Oh my gosh, um, I'm so jealous. Who? Which yeah, one? Was, Who did you have a favorite? Was, did I have a favorite? Yeah. Uh, well, so it was Baby Spice for a really long time really? and kind of similar to you. I think it was based on my hair color because yeah. I had, you know, blonde hair growing up. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think I just like identified with her more Then Ginger left. And then I don't know why, but I really liked Ginger that I was like, oh, she left. Like I miss her. Now she's my favorite. Mm. And the time when I went to their concert, actually Ginger had just left. So it was only four of them. Oh, really? And. Yeah. And I remember I dressed up in this really like sparkly outfit. A lot of people gave me really dirty looks that I was like five years old, but I was going all out. Go you. Sparkly tube top and mini skirt. Um, I would wear that now, by the way. Yeah. They gave me so much confidence. You know, I wanted to be just like them. Yeah. Even now I still love them, but I couldn't be one of them because yeah, I'm not good at singing. I'm not good at dancing. And I'm not even good at karaoke and Japan loves karaoke and yeah. I'm horrible at karaoke. But that that's missing the point. I mean, I'm te- I'm the worst singer ever. That is not part of my skill set, like building IKEA furniture. Singing just doesn't come naturally to me. But I love <laughs> a good karaoke session. So I I'd love to finish just by asking where my listeners can find you and support all of the amazing work that you're doing. So feel free to plug your website, your social media handles, your podcast location and anything else here. Yeah. So if you are interested in anything that I'm doing or curious about doing one-on-one coaching, definitely go to brieschmidt.com. Also, I love to interact with people and update on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is at Brie underscore Schmidt. And also you can go check out my podcast, Bad Girlfriend Radio, which is on all major podcast platforms. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Well, that has been another episode of Feminist Fridays for this week. So thank you again to Brie for joining us all the way from Tokyo. And be sure to check out Bad Girlfriend Radio for all you badasses out there. And this week, thanks to Bree's inspiration, I'm leaving you with a track by the unstoppable music force that is Dua Lipa that is all about crushing expectations and breaking rules. It's, of course, New Rules, and this is the 2017 Alice in Wonderland remix, because we all know that I'm a remix tragic. So au revoir and see you next Friday for another fierce dose of feminism. Talking in my sleep at night, making myself crazy. Out of my mind, out of my mind. Wrote it down and read it out, hoping it would save me Too many times, too many times My it makes it feel like nobody else Nobody else But my it doesn't love me So I tell myself, I tell myself 
I got no rules, I count them. 